In section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord gave Joseph Smith the word of wisdom, which we often take to be a list of do's and don'ts about how to care for our bodies. But there is more deep doctrine there than we often see, and we will share some of those ahas and surprises with you today, two of which you may have never considered before. Hello, we're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. This week we are studying Doctrine and Covenants sections 89 through 92 in a lesson called A Principle with a Promise. If ever there was a revelation of kindness, this is certainly one, because the Lord, who knows every minute detail about how our bodies are created and what makes them bloom and vitality, is sharing some crucial insight. While we are given some specific prohibitions in the Word of Wisdom, much of the counsel is given in broader principles that don't spell out every detail. Instead, the Lord reminds us that we are stewards of a sacred trust, our bodies, and He will help us by telling us things that no one else entirely knew at the time this revelation was given. If the peoples of the world who lived throughout the eons of time had understood and been able to live these principles, the entire history of the world would have been different. Think how many wars have been cruelly waged by soldiers fired up on drunkenness. Consider how many hearts have been broken, relationships crushed, and families demolished from alcoholism. How many rash words have been said, how many duels fought, how many women raped, how much virtue tossed aside by people caught in traps of addiction that they didn't see and were caught in because they didn't know. Consider the diseases people have endured because they didn't know how toxic tobacco was. Knowledge is power, and the Lord distilled critical knowledge upon our heads with this revelation we call the Word of Wisdom. In the 1830s, nearly all men and many women in America drank alcohol, and its consumption was at a peak during this period. Stephen C. Harper notes that the year after Joseph Smith's first vision, distillers in upstate New York sent 65,277 gallons of corn whiskey and 69 tons of beer to market on the Erie Canal. At the same time, a spirit of reform began pulsing across the nation as some Americans were concerned by the social vices and particularly alcohol abuse. The thing has arrived to such a height, one temperance advocate noted, that we are actually threatened with becoming a nation of drunkards. A new method of spreading the powerfully addictive nicotine, the cigarette, was about to spread its way across the globe. The American Temperance Society arose in 1826 with over 2,000 local chapters, and a distillery had been closed in Kirtland. Something was astir, and certainly people were wondering where they fell in these discussions. The ground was being laid for a new revelation, but still the word of wisdom was not just an answer to the times, but went way beyond the use of alcohol and tobacco, giving so much more that could only come from the mind of God. Joseph and Emma had been living in Hiram, Ohio, until September 1832, when they moved to living quarters above Newell K. Whitney's store in Kirtland. Emma's kitchen was located on the ground floor, and just above it was a schoolroom Levi Hancock had created by remodeling a former porch. This is where the School of the Prophets was held, where the brethren would come to learn doctrine in preparation for preaching the gospel. 
Brigham Young said, The brethren came to that place for hundreds of miles to attend school in a little room, probably no larger than 11 by 14. When they assembled together in this room, after breakfast, the first thing they did was to light their pipes and, while smoking, talk about the great things of the kingdom. Now, 22 of those 24 brethren who were in the school of the prophets used tobacco, and they would gather together in this small room, and the room would be so filled with smoke that one account says you could hardly see the lantern on the other side of the room as you opened the door. And then they would talk about the things of the kingdom and the things of God. Well, after they finished their smoking tobacco, then they would just put a little wad right there in the mouth like this, and they start their chewing tobacco. And of course, the more you chew, the yummier it gets. It starts mixing in with the spittle in your mouth and the tobacco juices and mixing around. Apparently, it's really yummy stuff. But it gets more and more stuff in your mouth. And then, what do you do? you got to spit it out. And the brethren would spit it out right there on the floor. Yes, they had spittoons, but sometimes they missed. And it was Emma's job to clean it up. And yes, she did not like this, of course. And she came to Joseph and she said, I think it would be a good idea if you could get a revelation where God could say that tobacco was a sin. Joseph thought this was also a good idea. And so he went into the room next to the school of the prophets and he knelt in prayer. And on February 27, 1833, perhaps with one or two with him, one acting as a scribe, he received the revelation that we now know as the word of wisdom. Note that date, because it will become important to us later, February 27, 1833. This revelation would enter a world so different than our own, where the consensus of medical opinion held that diseases or disorders were caused by an imbalance in a person's inner energy source. Excess energy was relieved through bleeding or purging. What was given in the word of wisdom was something utterly different that would only be corroborated by medical science many decades later. Scientists have confirmed that Latter-day Saints have less incidence of heart disease, all forms of cancer, and many other diseases because of their adherence to the word of wisdom. Ezra Taft Benson noted, Several years ago, an investigator gave this testimonial about Joseph Smith. He said, The word of wisdom was the revelation that most attracted him to investigate the church. There is no possible way, he said, that Joseph Smith could have known what we now know in the medical world about the harmful effects of tobacco, alcohol, tea, and coffee. Yet this has all been substantiated by medical science. He said that this was the beginning of his earnest investigation of the gospel, for he reasoned that if Joseph Smith could be so accurate on a matter that medical science validated over a hundred years later, the rest of the teachings of the church deserved investigation. How many times has that story been repeated? The word of wisdom, when it was first given, was not by commandment or constraint. It was, in fact, a word of wisdom. Yet this is an example of how the Lord taught the saints line upon line, precept upon precept, not putting anyone's membership on the line for habits they had long been addicted to. In September 1851, President Young proposed to the Church's General Conference that all saints should formally covenant to keep the word of wisdom. This was unanimously accepted. According to H. Dean Garrett and Stephen E. Robinson, 
Though church leaders have counseled observance of the word of wisdom from the beginning, and frequent attempts were made to impress its importance upon the saints, total abstinence from coffee, tea, alcohol, and tobacco was seldom preached or practiced in the first thirty years after the revelation was received. President Joseph F. Smith explained, The reason undoubtedly why the word of wisdom was given, as not by commandment or restraint, was that at that time, at least, if it had been given as a commandment, it would have brought every man addicted to the use of these noxious things under condemnation. So the Lord was merciful and gave them a chance to overcome before he brought them under the law. Garrett and Robinson note, by the 1860s, it could be said that Mormons were temperate and moderate, but not abstinent. Many church leaders did not begin completely to live the word of wisdom until several decades after it was received. On the 13th of October, 1882, the Lord revealed to John Taylor that the word of wisdom should henceforth be considered a commandment to the church. Soon thereafter, on the 28th of September, 1883, the Quorum of the Twelve collectively resolved to observe the Word of Wisdom in its entirety, and on 11th of October, 1883, observance of the Word of Wisdom was made a condition for attending the recently revived School of the Prophets. So this is 50 years later. They continue, During October Conference in 1908, President Anthony H. Lund of the First Presidency announced that individuals violating the word of wisdom should not be called to leadership positions in local units and quorums of the church. In 1913, the First Presidency instructed the president of the Salt Lake Stake not to recommend young men for missionary service unless they were observing the word of wisdom. And finally, in 1919, the First Presidency under Heber J. Grant began to make observance of the Word of Wisdom a condition for receiving a temple recommend. It must be noted, they continue, that the history of Word of Wisdom observance in the Church does not indicate any change in the will of God from earlier times. It has been the Lord's will since at least the 27th of February, 1833, that the saints observe the Word of Wisdom. The Lord has been merciful, however, in allowing us collectively to change our culture and our habits over time, rather than condemning us all for an inability to observe all things immediately. The word of wisdom is adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest of all saints. That's in verse 3 of section 89. The Lord allows us to grow in our understanding and capacity. Of course, we know what the prohibitions are in the word of wisdom. Strong drinks, or in other words, alcohol or harmful beverages, are not for the belly. Tobacco is not for the body and is not good for man. Hot drinks, defined as tea and coffee, are not for the body. Boyd K. Packer noted, Members write in asking if this thing or that is against the word of wisdom. It's well known that tea, coffee, liquor, and tobacco are against it. It's not been spelled out in more detail. Rather, we teach the principle together with the promised blessings. There are many habit-forming addictive things that one can drink or chew or inhale or inject which injure both body and spirit which are not mentioned in the Revelation. Everything harmful is not specifically listed. Arsenic, for instance, certainly bad but not habit-forming. He who must be commanded in all things, the Lord said, is a slothful and not a wise servant. Abstaining from alcohol, tobacco, coffee, and tea have made us distinctive in every social situation. 
Some people looking at us from the outside may think, in fact, that it is our most distinctive feature and may suggest that Latter-day Saints are somehow weird. Every one of us knows how that feels. Sometimes it is tough to stand alone, but it also opens up great opportunities to talk about why you turn down every kind of drink. Beer? No. Wine? No. Coffee? No. Tea? No. Do you drink anything? That's a typical conversation. When I was in high school in Ankara, Turkey, people used to come to parties with lots of alcohol, but they brought 7-Up for me. They announced really loudly at the beginning of any party that nobody except Proctor could touch that 7-Up. It was all for me. Following my religion made me different than my buddies, but I also felt they respected me for it. If I had grabbed a bottle of beer, these non-member friends of mine would have been the first to stop me. Of course, they didn't have to, because as church members, we can make a firm and unequivocal resolution not to break the word of wisdom, even once, and never break that vow. How easy it is if you only make that decision once, instead of ever revisit it for any reason. President James E. Fast told this story. In 1976, Elder Robert C. Oakes, then a colonel in the United States Air Force, was a member of the Incidents at Sea negotiating team. They were guests at a dinner hosted by the Leningrad Naval District. About 50 senior officers of the Soviet Union and the United States were present as the host led the group in toasts before dinner. They stood for the first toast and raised their glasses, most of which were filled with Russian vodka. Brother Oakes had pink lemonade in his glass, which was immediately noticed by the admiral leading the toast. He stopped and demanded that Brother Oakes fill his glass with vodka, stating that he would not proceed until he had done so. Brother Oakes declined, explaining that he was happy with what he had in his glass. A significant tension began to build, and even his own team members, most of whom were senior to him, were growing uneasy over the impasse. Brother Oakes' Soviet escort hissed in his ear, "'Fill your glass with vodka!' Brother Oakes uttered the shortest prayer of his life, God help me. Within seconds, the Soviet interpreter, an army captain with whom he had previously discussed religion, whispered to the host admiral, it is because of his religion. The admiral nodded his head, the tension immediately diffused, and the program moved on. Elder Oaks had decided years before that he would never drink alcohol, and so in the moment of trial, he did not have to make this choice again. Elder Oaks was convinced that more harm would have come to him if he had compromised a tenet of his faith than the harm that would have come from drinking the vodka. Incidentally, adhering to his religious principles did not hurt his career. After this incident, he went on to become a four-star general. Maureen, I remember that we had our own little moment that could have been high pressure, but it wasn't. We had a driver who took us and others in our group up a heart-stopping narrow road that dropped off at the edges to a town called Dharamsala that sat right on the edge of the Himalayas in India. He was a crazy driver who lurched the car around the edges and we could easily envision tumbling thousands of feet off the decline. We were on our way to visit the Dalai Lama. Certainly a thrilling proposition. However, at the last minute, he was unable to visit us because he had 17 other parties waiting to see him, and his sister gave us an audience instead. 
She was one of the most obviously gracious and lovely women we have ever met. And she talked with great courage how they were rescuing children from Tibet who had been abandoned in the Himalayas by those who were supposed to be escorting them to India and to safety. Her orphanage was full of these children whose toes and fingers had been so severely frostbitten they had lost their digits. Then, in a note of hospitality, she carefully brewed tea and passed us teacups and went around offering us each a drink. How entirely awkward and ungracious to turn down this offer, but we did. We thought if anyone would understand something about how important religion could be to somebody, she would. That moment stayed with us forever, though. We who are members of the church have all had those moments that demanded the courage of our convictions. They often become great missionary moments when we can share why we would choose to live so differently from those around us. In this revelation, the Lord says why he gives the word in consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. I have warned you and forewarn you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. In other words, there will be people who set out to harm us, who set out to injure our health by design. Stephen C. Harper quotes this, It is hard to overstate how remarkably prophetic the revelation is in forewarning saints how to act wisely in the midst of conspiracies designed to harm them. Some of these conspiracies have come to light in the last generation. Saints who wisely heeded the warning escaped the evil designs against them. The health benefits of obeying all aspects of the word of wisdom have become increasingly clear. Most obviously, tobacco was linked to lung cancer in the 1950s, and since then, numerous other health problems have been linked to smoking, including heart disease and birth defects. Mounting scientific evidence has slowly persuaded governments to regulate the manufacture and marketing of tobacco products, causing tobacco companies to move their efforts to vulnerable populations in countries ill-equipped to combat them. One tactic of the conspirators is to smuggle millions of cigarettes into such countries and then persuade national leaders that they are losing tax revenue, so why not legalize and then tax the cigarettes? Tobacco companies purchase influence while causing a public health crisis that has become a global pandemic. Shortly after scientific evidence linked cigarette smoking with lung cancer, fiercely competitive executives of America's largest tobacco companies met at the Plaza Hotel in New York City to become allies. They employed a public relations firm to sell the idea that public health was their primary concern. If cigarettes were as harmful as science indicated, their pitch declared, then obviously the tobacco companies would stop selling them. The quote continues, One non-Mormon analyst said that this meeting marked the beginning of the conspiracy. In the 1960s, scientists began officially stating that smoking caused lung cancer. The tobacco conspiracy countered by organizing themselves and spending millions on advertising in what one professor called a scheme to defraud that differed little from organized crime. They also sponsored what has been called scientific subversion by hiring scientists to produce findings consistent with tobacco company aims. 
In the 1990s, with the evils and designs in the hearts of conspiring men clearly evident, several states filed suit against tobacco companies. In 1997, Mississippi Attorney General Michael Moore visited Salt Lake City, where he was hosted by General Authorities of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, W. Eugene Hansen and Marlon K. Jensen. All three men were lawyers, and their conversation naturally turned to the legal action Mississippi, Utah, and other states were then taking against tobacco companies. Moore explained that his legal strategy was to prove a conspiracy on the part of tobacco companies using the overwhelming evidence that had come to light in the internal documents that revealed their intentions. Helder Jensen drew Moore's attention to the fourth verse of the Word of Wisdom. We listened attentively, Helder Jensen said, as he slowly and deliberately read that verse out loud in his appealing southern accent. Behold, Verily thus saith the Lord unto you, In consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days, I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. Elder Jensen noted that the scriptural reference to conspiring men was not lost on Mr. Moore. As he finished reading verse 4, a broad smile came across his face. And with a twinkle in his eye, he said, I never dreamed in visiting Utah I might find 10 million people who would agree with my conspiracy theories. Helder Jensen testified, My heart burned within me that day and has many times since as I have thought about Joseph Smith's gift as a prophet and seer. There is really no other explanation for the origin of that 1833 revelation. It waited until nearly the end of the 20th century for an almost literal verification of one of its key passages. In the hearts of the faithful saints who have heeded its message for nearly 170 years, however, there has never been any doubt about its authenticity or relevance. The cigarette companies created candy and fruit-flavored products to appeal to children. They sought celebrity endorsements. They made misleading health claims, stating, for instance, that there were low-harm versions of their products. They glamorized smoking. They targeted children in foreign nations and put ads in magazines and publications and Saturday morning cartoons that were popular with children. They used cartoon characters such as Joe Camel to appeal to young audiences. They targeted youth as their replacement smokers, as adults began to catch on to the health hazards. And this is only the tobacco industry we're talking about. What about alcohol and what about drugs? Think, in fact, how the adversary uses conspiring men and women in arenas from drugs to the creation of bioweapons in labs to destroy our bodies. We know that the Lord also tells us what we should do to stay healthy. These foods which are good for man are described in these words. All wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man. Every herb in the season thereof, and every fruit in the season thereof. Flesh of beasts and of the fowls of the air are to be used sparingly. All grain is ordained for the use of man, to be the staff of life. All grain is good for the food of man, as also the fruit of the vine." These are the principles, but the promises are far greater than physical health. This shouldn't be surprising since the spirit and the body are the soul of man. 
the promises involve mighty spiritual blessings, including enhancing our ability to receive revelation and find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, which are connected to receiving health in their navel and marrow to their bones. Here is one of the aha moments we promised. D. Lynn Johnson wrote a paper on the significance of this revelation for our salvation. This is much more than health code alone. He came to realize that section 89 is written in an ancient Hebrew literary form called a chiasm. This is a series of parallel ideas where the first idea is repeated in the last idea. The second to the first idea is repeated in the second to the last idea and so forth. The entire revelation leads to a center point where the key idea is found. In the word of wisdom, the key idea at the center is all grain is ordained for the use of man and of beasts to be the staff of life. Lynn explains, it is intriguing to find the use of grain as the staff of life at the turning point, the traditional point of emphasis of a chiasm. In contrast, how often our meals more typically are centered on some type of meat. What is the significance of this emphasis on grain? Is it solely for health reasons, or are there deeper symbolic meanings? We recall the statement in Doctrine and Covenants 29:34, Wherefore, verily I say unto you that all things unto me are spiritual, and not at any time have I given unto you a law which was temporal. Taking this as a clue, we ask, what are the spiritual implications of grain for the use of man? Does grain signify the things of the spirit and meat the things of the flesh? Grain and bread made therefrom appear prominently in both the New and Old Testaments. Christ referred to both grain and bread in his parables. Bread was central to the miracles of feeding the multitudes. Grain figured in his teachings about the Sabbath day, and he taught us to pray for our daily bread. Most of these, and perhaps all of them, point to Christ as the bread of life. Isn't that just amazing? So we are talking about Christ as the bread of life at the very center of the revelation on the word of wisdom. It's breathtaking. That is just revelatory. Christ so identified himself and carried this to the ultimate conclusion when he instituted bread as the symbol of his body at the Last Supper. Thus, a well-known symbol of Christ appears at the point of emphasis of the Word of Wisdom, confirming our knowledge of Him as the key to our temporal as well as eternal salvation. The Word of Wisdom is not only a word for physical health, but for spiritual health as well. It should be no surprise that taking seriously the stewardship of our bodies is deeply entwined with spiritual health. These are the bodies we yearn for to make progress. Without them, we understand that spirits feel a sense of bondage. You cannot divide the temporal and the spiritual, for they are one. Think of the breathtaking promise that is given at the end of the revelation on the word of wisdom. I, the Lord, give unto them a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. Is this promise just about health, that you are healthier because you followed the word of wisdom? Think of those children of Israel who carefully painted the blood of a lamb on their lintels and around their doors. They were being spared from the destroying angel because of the Savior's mighty atonement. 
we notice that this blessing about having the destroying angel pass by us is not just about being healthy, but because of obedience to all the Lord's commandments, relying ultimately on the merits and mercy given us through the atonement. On February 27, 1833, when they were given this commandment, the men in the school of the prophets immediately cast their pipes and tobacco into the fire as a signal of their complete obedience. Heber C. Kimball broke his pipe in half, in fact. I thought that was a wonderful thing he did. Thus, 19 days later, as recorded in section 90, on March 18, 1833, when the First Presidency was organized in that little schoolroom where the School of the Prophets was held, a completely different atmosphere ruled. And this is the second aha. Now there was no smoke, no spitting on the floor, A new and more solemn decorum had come. It was a preparation for what happened this day when unprecedented visions came to those present. Carl Ricks Anderson, who has deeply studied the visions in Kirtland, notes, Specific accounts identify that in addition to Joseph Smith, John Murdoch and Zebedee Coltrane also saw the Savior that day. Beyond the vision of the Savior, Zebedee saw God the Father. Written accounts verify that he spoke of this vision on at least seven occasions. Joseph Smith said that many of the probable 20 or so persons who attended the school also saw the Savior and many other things. Therefore, it is possible to conjecture that at least three others also saw those visions. Joseph formally recorded the events of this meeting in which the visions took place. He said, Great joy and satisfaction continually beamed in the countenances of the school of the prophets and the saints on account of the things revealed and our progress in the knowledge of God. The high priests assembled in the schoolroom of the prophets and were organized according to Revelation. I laid my hands on brothers Sidney and Frederick and ordained them to take part with me in holding the keys of this last kingdom and to assist in the presidency of the high priesthood as my counselors, after which I gave much instruction with a promise that the pure in heart should see a heavenly vision, and after remaining a short time in secret prayer, the promise was verified." For many present had the eyes of their understanding opened by the Spirit of God, so as to behold many things. Many of the brethren saw a heavenly vision of the Savior, and concourses of angels, and many other things of which each one has a record of what he saw. And Maureen, I really do have to say I love this contrast of just 19 days before when the word of wisdom was given and that room was full of smoke and all the things that we just talked about. And now we're having this meeting with these glorious manifestations. It's just such an incredible contrast. I really do love that. John Murdoch was one of the witnesses whose record is preserved. John recorded one of the most complete descriptions of Christ. And we've said this before, but it bears repeating. He said, We had a number of prayer meetings in the prophet's chamber in which we obtained great blessings. In one of those meetings, the prophet told us if we would humble ourselves before God, and exercise strong faith, we should see the face of the Lord. About midday, the visions of my mind were opened, and the eyes of my understanding were enlightened, and I saw the form of a man most lovely. The visage of his face was sound and fair as the sun, his hair a bright silver gray, 
curled in most majestic form, his eyes a keen, penetrating blue, and the skin of his neck a most beautiful white, and he was covered from the neck to the feet with a loose garment, pure white, whiter than any garment I have ever before seen. His countenance was most penetrating, and yet most lovely. And while I was endeavoring to comprehend the whole personage from head to feet, it slipped from me, and the vision was closed up. But it left on my mind the impression of love for months that I never before felt to that degree. Zebedee Coltrane also saw the Savior in the School of the Prophets in the Whitney store that March 18, 1833, and testified, At one of these meetings after the organization of the school, when we were all together, Joseph, having given instructions, and while engaged in silent prayer, kneeling, each one praying in silence, no one whispered above his breath, I saw a personage. Joseph asked if we saw him. I saw him, and supposed the others did, and Joseph answered that it is Jesus, the Son of God, our elder brother. Then, speaking of seeing a vision of God the Father, Zebedee continued, Afterward, Joseph told us to resume our former position in prayer, which we did. Another person came. He was surrounded as with a flame of fire. I experienced a sensation that it might destroy the tabernacle as it was of consuming fire and great brightness. The prophet Joseph said, This was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The brethren asked Zebedee about the clothing the Father wore. Brother Coltrane said, I did not discover his clothing, for he was surrounded so with a flame of fire that was so brilliant that I could not discover anything else but his presence. I saw his hands, his legs, his feet, his eyes, nose, mouth, head, and body in the shape and form of a perfect man. This appearance was so grand and overwhelming that it seemed I should melt down in his presence, and the sensation was so powerful that it thrilled through my whole system, and I felt it in the marrow of my bones. With this level of outpouring from the heavens, no wonder we read in section 90, Search diligently, pray always, and be believing, and all things shall work together for your good, if ye walk uprightly and remember the covenant wherewith ye have covenanted one with another. All things work together for our good when we are true to the revelations God has given us. That's all for today. We're Scott and Maureen Proctor, and this is Meridian Magazine's Come Follow Me podcast. Next week, we will study Section 93, Receive of His Fullness. Thanks to Paul Cardall for the music and to Michaela Proctor Hutchins, our daughter, who produces this show.